we've reached 100,000 downloads of this podcast. That's a crazy number. That's amazing. That's amazing. And thanks to everybody out there who downloads and listens every week. Our, our faithful listeners have gotten us to that threshold. It's a, it's a huge number. And we, more and more people are listening to Uptime every week, and we appreciate everybody doing that. Uh, this week's episode, uh, a lot going on. TUV Nord uh, does some drone inspections of concrete towers. We talk a little bit about what are they looking for? How can they look for it more efficiently, you know, kind of following a bit of our experience in the blade world. Uh, and then also Charles Rivers Analytics. So they've teamed up with Vineyard Wind to work with some AI, machine learning, and some sensor packages, sonar on the, in, this, in the water, and uh, basically thermal cameras and color cameras on the top side to uh, look for whales and fishing gear and some other things that keep uh, the uh, impact down uh, during offshore wind farm activities in the East Coast. Then we'll talk about AEP selling their renewables business to Invenergy. And FERC matches up with NERC to define extreme cold reliability standards to keep the lights on in places like Texas. And our wind farm of the week is, quote, Block Wind Farm up in Wisconsin. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with my good friend from Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxum, and the soon-to-be guest host of Fully Charged Live event in Australia, Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Joel, TUV Nord is using piloted drones to inspect concrete towers of wind turbines. And when I first saw this story, it's probably been a month or so ago, I thought, uh-oh, new concrete wind turbine towers have problems. And evidently they do. And they're working with an undisclosed partner. And I assumed at the time that it was Nordex because Nordex uses a lot of concrete towers. A, a quick search on Google uh, said Nordex has got a couple thousand concrete towers out in service. So they're concerned about having cracks in these towers as they age and get to the end of the warranty period. Uh, right now, they're just taking pictures and looking for cracks, but obviously someone's got to fish through those and determine if there are cracks and if there are, if there are cracks, what they're going to do about them. But it sounds like they're going to be moving to a more automated system to find these cracks and get them repaired before the warranty expires. So someone's doing the end of warranty campaign. A big one. And in lieu of uh, any of way of doing this, I, I don't think there is another way to inspect a concrete tower besides putting some eyeballs on it. I mean, visually, yeah. Um, NDT, of course, uh, right? So doing doing some NDT work to, but it's where do you start? Yeah, you're looking at you know classically. I've used I've used ground penetrating radar to look at rebar inside of concrete for you know different projects before, but that's. Again, that's a, you know, those are big antennas. It's not that easy. It, it, and then you're covering what you're looking at with ground penetrating radar. Yes, it is a raster image, right? It's like a picture. But those pictures aren't very big, right? So they're dang near, when you're talking concrete tower, you're talking it's a vector. It's almost like a point image. If you were to do a whole scan of that whole thing, it would take you forever. Um, but visually, there's a lot of things you can detect fairly easily, right? So we you know, in the blade world, we talk about AI algorithms and all these things. And it's very specialized, to be honest with you. AI algorithms, machine learning algorithms to pick out defects in blades. 
with concrete towers, there's so many other things made out of concrete, right? There's bridge pulpits and and all kinds of stuff within the civil engineering world. All of every bridge and highway and the, you know, there's there's concrete structures everywhere. So I would be willing to bet, and I'm not saying this because I know um, I'm not inspecting concrete at this stage of my life. So I'm I'm not in the know in that in that sector. But I would be willing to bet that there is some off the shelf uh, AI. That can pick some of this stuff up. So I would be almost willing to bet somewhere you can find, or you you can get a hold of a company that has developed some kind of software to take visual input, whether it's video or images, and do an AI recognition algorithm on it to to help speed this process up, right? Because, um, you know, cracking and spalling um, big issues. Because once you spall off a piece of concrete, that exposes the steel underneath. And I'm I'm not an expert on concrete towers for wind turbines, but I imagine they have rebar in them. Um, and I don't know if that rebar is epoxy coated or not, because if it's not epoxy coated and you get some cracking and spalling and there's, and the, and whatever coating was put on the outside of these things, now you're going to get water ingress and you're going to start to rust that steel. And once you do that, you're in for some issues. Well, that was my first question was, isn't it just easy to look for the rust marks? Because if you have some significant cracking in the concrete, you will see rust. That'll tell you everything, won't it? Yeah. And those are the easy ones to pick out. Right. But I think that, um, there's not, it, there, there may be some stuff, some cracks that are developing at an early stage that you won't see. You know, uh, here's another way to do this as well. We've done this before in the past in Windpower Lab is um, before we all switched over to drones, the hot ticket on the market was a system by Corny, uh, a French company called Panoblade. Have you heard of that one, Al? No. So Panoblade was a system developed by this French company that uh, basically was a a one inch CMOS DSLR camera with like a 600 millimeter lens on it. And it was on a tripod and it had a little robotic stand. And then you hooked it up to a laptop, right? So you stop the blades, you'd get like two meters off of the tower and you'd stop the blades in a horizontal position. And then you'd point the camera up and you'd go like, okay, this is the route. And then you'd manually kind of scroll over with the camera and say, this is the tip. And then you would go, go. And it would take the pictures in sequence by itself all the way along the blade with the correct overlap for you. And then you would say to the technician, okay, pitch the blade, you know, 180 degrees. So you do that on all four blades. You do the suction side, pressure side, trailing edge, leading edge with that robotic camera from the ground. And then you roll to the next, and then you do the blade opposite and then you'd roll for the third one, right? So that was how inspections were done in an, in a quote unquote automated fashion before drones became the hot ticket. Um, but you can also take that same exact camera back up, depending on the tower height, right? Back up 40 meters from the tower and then do the same thing, point it at the base and then point it at the nacelle and then say, I'm doing the tower, take pictures. So that was, and then you do it, do it on all four sides, like a compass rose, northeast, southwest, you'd move around if you're, it was, you know, nice if you're out in the field or something. But um, that was a way in the past of inspecting towers. Uh, but that, of course, that was steel towers. You could do it with concrete ones as well. But that's a, just a good way of collecting imagery. It, it does make you wonder a little bit because GE's been looking into the 3D printed concrete bases in like the lower portion of a tower. Which is, then you can stick a steel tube on top of it to make the turbine sit higher. Uh, we don't have a lot of experience with concrete towers besides, I think, mostly Nordex. You wonder if some of that feedback loop is going to start because now we have several years, five, six years of experience with it. Do we now understand 
what the upside and downsides are of concrete towers. You know, we've been using concrete as a, as a society in general for a lot of high stress components for a long, long time. Every, you know, the majority of, I'm not going to say the majority, a lot of bridges that you drive over and see heavy trucks going over, it's made out of concrete. A lot of that's pre-stressed concrete, right? And I don't know if they do pre-stress on these towers or how they're engineered to to make them strong. But I think that there's got to be a way to make that, to to have towers that are, um, strong enough to support the nacelle and all these good things. And then of course the out, the outside of the, the coating, you, you're as good as your coating is on the outside, right? Cause if you can keep it weathered from the storm, you're great. Talk about these, these, uh, wind farms that are going offshore in the U S I've seen contracts floated around already for, I mean, the efforts are crazy and this is just, it's for corrosion control, but it's like, Hey, I need, I need 30 to 40 guys for six months. What are they going to be doing? They're going to be doing touch up paint on these towers offshore. Like what are you crazy? Like the amount of the, the money go, that goes into just corrosion control of touch up for these offshore things. So same kind of thing. If you have a concrete tower on, on shore, we're talking about cracks or spalling or, you know, water getting into the concrete, concrete's a sponge. So if you can stop it by having a good coating on the outside, um, you're ahead of the game, I think. I think that's what matters here. Uh, and that's what I'm wondering if it didn't have a good coating or if it got exposed a lot to salt, which can be pretty aggressive against concrete. Uh, have they having some issues there? So it's just an interesting news story. Anybody that lives in the North has, has you don't put salt on your concrete uh, sidewalks because after one or two summers or one or two winters, they will uh, be full of pits and holes and all kinds of stuff. You can you can ask my dad about that one. And that's why the bridges, the bridge pillars uh, and abutments here in the Northeast look the way that they do, where you can see the rebar underneath of them and a lot of them because the salt is so aggressive. So aggressive. Get the latest on wind industry news, business, and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com slash news. Well, as we keep searching for whales and ways to avoid running into them with ships, uh, there's a company outside of Boston, Massachusetts, that's looking into uh, having an automated uh, system to identify whales using its sort of an electro-optical system and infrared video to detect them. Uh, and Vineyard Wind has partnered with them. So Vineyard Wind's that new wind farm off the coast of Massachusetts where there's a lot of whales. So Vineyard Wind and Charles River Analytics uh, are working together to protect the whales and other marine mammals uh, during the construction of the Vineyard One project. And the Charles River Analytics has has a system called Awarion. <laughs> Just a little bit of an odd name. Uh, the, yeah, it, it, it works uh, in conjunction with other detection technologies that are on the, sh on the ship. And it uses uh, some artificial intelligence and basically a computer vision system uh, to support the human lookouts. And Joel, before we the podcast, you were telling me about these human lookouts, but I, I guess you have people on ships with binoculars looking for the whales so they don't run into them? Yeah. So past life, uh, this is where that this knowledge kind of comes from for me was in uh, oil and gas exploration onshore and offshore. So when you're offshore, of course, you want to make sure that you're not harming um, any wildlife as, as least you can, right? So the energy that you use is in air cannons. So you're shooting off these air cannons, um, you know, that could be crazy amounts of power in them. So it might be 
3,000 PSI, and you're shooting off 32 of these air cannons that are the size of a basketball all at once every eight seconds. Just boom, 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 right? So, but what you do before you start doing that in an area to make sure that you're clear of any um, marine uh, mammal species or anything like that is you ramp them up. So you might shoot one gun at 10%, like barely any energy, and you ramp that one gun up to 100% energy. And then you add in two, and then you add in four, and then you add in eight, and then you add in six. So, so you're slowly, you're putting out a little bit of a signal, and then you're slowly getting that signal to be louder and louder and louder. Because what when you shoot off an air cannon in the water, it creates a shock wave, and that shock wave is acoustic energy that travels through the water column. So if you do it small enough at the beginning, any whales, sea life, seals, sea otters, these kind of things that are fish in the area will go like, oh, I want to get away from that, right? At that little tiny thing. So they start swimming away. And by the time you have ramped up, the area is clear uh, and you haven't harmed anything. So the people that are on the vessels are called marine mammal observers. And in an oil and gas, um, in, in U.S. waters, uh, is what the majority of my experience was, they are the, they're the most powerful person on the boat. You always think that, oh, the captain of the ship, you know, and these might be 150 foot long, 200 foot long ships. The captain of the ship is the, the one in charge. The marine mammal observers got more power than anybody because they will shut that ship down. They'll shut your shift down. They'll shut any activity you're doing down if they see any kind of marine mammal in the water. Sometimes on a vessel, you have uh, two, three, or four of them, de depending on what kind of activities you're undertaking. You know, like it, it might be, if you're going to be operating 24 hours, you may have two on shift at a time. And that one, one during the day might be out on the bridge with binoculars, literally just scanning the horizon, looking for, you know, a whale surfacing or, or any other sign or signal of, of some kind of marine mammal in the area. And then you may have another one looking at a, a, a you know, a sonar uh screen you know in the bridge of the boat to see what they can see in the subsurface so there's two two areas right you have the above the water and basically below the water um, and you need two people to cover that so and those people will switch back and forth and whatnot so the same thing that goes for any kind of regular operations they're they're having this uh these marine mammal observers i'm going to imagine on these vessels that are doing installations and uh, whatnot of these offshore wind farms and they're there as basically agents of uh, public agencies to protect the, the fisheries. So US, U, USDA, US Forest Service, um, uh, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, who whatever, whatever agency says in the contract, you have to have these people on there. They usually work for a, a separate company or something and they have biology degrees and whatnot. And then they're on that boat as a part of the contract. It seems like automated technology or AI technology would be a better way of detecting those sea creatures, right? The human eye looking out on the ocean can get blinded pretty quickly. You get tired, you get blinded, you get, you get, you know, as, as much as you don't want to say it, if you're out there on shift, right? So you might be that, that marine mammal observer might have those binoculars in their hand for 42 days straight, <laughs> standing out there getting sunburnt and you know what I mean? So that person gets tired. Uh, and you, 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 you know, that you, you have an element of human error there. So you have the element of human error, but you also don't have any traceability. Right. I've done I've done things before where you have pipeline inspections and there's someone like, how do you do your pipeline inspections on land? And I'm like, oh, we have a guy that flies down with a notebook in his lap. And if he sees a leak, he writes it down on the notebook. Would you rather have that or would you rather have someone out there like with a drone with thermal imagery that has timestamps and date stamps and X, Y, Z and all this stuff on those things? Right. So. 
you're going to go from a, an analog type marine mammal observer on the vessel deck or behind the sonar looking at things, noting things in an Excel spreadsheet or writing things in a notebook to all of a sudden now you have, if as they're doing anal analytics, we're going to running AI models or machine learning models on the imagery that they're picking up, which they're talking about using um, electro-optical and infrared. So electro-optical infrared, basically you're saying it's going it, to, they have a color camera and a thermal camera. That's the, the, the easy way of saying it. So they'll pick up heat signatures on the top of the water. You can't pick those up subsea, of course. You pick up heat signatures on the top of the water or you'll pick up uh, visual things. So you might pick up a fishing buoy or a boat or a, it's a fishing boat or is it a pleasure craft? Is it someone out sailing? Now you don't have to take notes. The AI will pick it up and say like, hey, if, if, they, if they can pick it up from two cameras on the vessel, they can triangulate where it is too, right? So if you have a a direction in the, uh, you know, in, uh, some kind of compass calibration in the in the uh, camera. Now you know the vessel was pointed. The, you know the the work vessel that we're on was pointed at you know 100 degrees. This thing was off at 50 degrees, and it was four kilometers away. Now you have a position on that boat, and you know where their fishing gear is. So now you know where their fishing gear is that they've been deploying. Well, that's great. Now you have record of it, and you can you can feed that into a database. So that's one thing. Now. You can also put in um, things that you, it might be stuff that you won't pick up as a person, like fishing buoys or something like that, or like a, a whale surfacing. You might miss it. AI doesn't miss that. AI picks it up, notes it, and it gives you, and it will take a snapshot and put a log together. And then all of a sudden, like at the end of the day, your job becomes reviewing the logs of the things that you, the AI found or the, the algorithms found rather than having to be the eyes to do it. Uh, the same thing works um, sub C. So, uh, experience from Wind Power Lab with this. We did a project with uh, the University of Aarhus a few years ago called the Bika Project. Uh, Bika, B-I-C-A, and it was a uh, bird collision and avoidance. So there's a there's a protected species of goose in Germany, and whenever these geese are near wind farms, they have to curtail the wind farms because they don't want to, um, you know, mess with their mating patterns or anything of, the, of these sorts, or you know, have one. God forbid, get hit by a blade. That'd be not good. So the project was uh, recreational grade, not even professional grade uh, radar. We put, put we put one flat to pick up a um, basically in the X Y plane, and then we turned one ninety degrees on the side to pick up the Z plane. So now you had mul multiple radar signatures that were in basically a domed area, feeding into a system. And uh, the smart software uh, guys in the background at Wind Power Lab wrote an AI algorithm to be able to pick these birds up out of the radar signatures so that you would get an automatic detection notification. Hey, this, cause you can see different kinds of birds. So, some birds sit and fly in a circle, you know, like a vulture or something. Some of them fly this way, some fly in a V. So if they're flying in a V pattern, well, that might be some geese. If there's, if they're doing this where they're looking for somewhere to land, they might be this type of thing. If they're this size, they might be this kind of bird. If it flies in a swarm at night, they're probably bats. Right, so you can kind of pick those things up from a radar signature, and if you write an algorithm that will take that data and sort it out, I think the Awareion system here from Charles Rivers Analytics is applying that same kind of idea, but to subsea sonar. So now you have the thermal and RGB, you know, color imagery on the surface to pick boats and buoys and all these different things up, but you also have an algorithm that is running on the sonar data subsurface to pick up whales or fish or nets or whatever else on the seafloor or in the, in the water column. If you wanted to know where the whales are traveling, uh, why don't we put this same technology in a bunch of buoys that already exist out there and just say, keep looking, 
put some solar cells out there, let it transmit back and forth. I think we do have some of that. You know that and that that and on those on some of those buoys in the in you know in the meta ocean phase of the the studies for these wind farms, it also has. Um, acoustic listening devices so they can pick up when the whales are doing their their acoustic communication so i think it's okay so the 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 article here states that vineyard wind won anyway charles river analytics i i think that's fantastic but it's also a great um pr move by vineyard wind one to put this out there Right. So, and, and the other side of it is, is, you know, while it would be nice to have this, like a Charles Rivers analytics type system on every buoy up and down the coast and on every boat out in the water, I mean, it's not, uh, I'm not going to say it's not open source. It's not the word I'm looking for, but it's not standardized across the, you know, the entire fleet that everything has the same kind of system on it. Right. So, like individually in the capitalist, capitalist market, we have to come up with solutions for different people to use. And, um, this is where we're at right now. Seems like a very solvable problem. And it, I, it, from the sounds of it, Vineyard Wind's going to run into difficulty this summer as things progress and the whales come up and the sharks come up for the summer. There's just going to be a lot of activity in the water and having more eyeballs and ears in the water makes sense to me. Yeah, I think it's going to be tough to be on one of those construction cruise vessels i think they're going to get messed with pretty hard I, I it'll get it'll get to the point i believe and this is just a, a prediction from my side where they will have to end up having uh escort vessels to keep perimeters while they're working because i've seen it before i i think that'll happen too i agree i agree with you there Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound, but Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet, and it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. American Electric Power has entered into an agreement to sell its basically 1.4 gigawatts of unregulated contract and renewable portfolio to IRG Acquisition Holdings, which is a partnership owned by Invenergy, CDPQ, and funds managed by Blackstone Infrastructure. And they're selling it for a value of about $1.5 billion, including project debt. Uh, AEP expects to net about $1.2 billion in cash after paying its taxes, transaction fees, and other adjustments, all the payouts to the lawyers there. Uh, and what AEP plans to do with that money is it, it's part of a, uh, of a larger effort where they're planning to spend about $40 billion over the next couple of years. Uh, in its uh, regulated business, adding about six, 16, 17 gigawatts of new generation and transmission line infrastructures. Uh, so this is in line with a lot of other things that are happening in the renewable business. There's sales of large swaths of uh, wind turbines and solar fields 
in this particular case, uh, there was 14 projects of wind and, and which is about 1. Let's see, 1.2 gigawatts of wind and about 170 megawatts of solar spread over 11 states. So this is a wide geo, uh, geo yeah, geography wise. It's a, it's a wide area. Now, Joel, this is not new, but it seems to be all the trend. So Phil Totero joined in today on LinkedIn and said, this is a great deal by Invenergy to acquire this wind and solar asset from AEP. Uh, you said the assets are acquired, are operating at or above P75, and the price point offsets uh, AEP's capital commitment. So AEP makes money on the deal, and Venergy gets some pretty good working assets to add to their uh, portfolio. So both sides come out as winners in this negotiation deal, completion of a deal. Uh, the deals could keep keep getting bigger, <laughs> right? Duke Energy was one, like, oh, it's Duke Energy. You know, they're not a huge player, but they're a decent-sized player. And then AEP, which is a big player, uh, starts selling assets. Does it continue on for the next year or two? I think it's just smart strategy, right? Like, so if you're – there's there's two ways I would look at it as well. If I was – if this was my strategy, so the strategy we're looking at here is <clears throat> build – unregulated assets. And when we say unregulated versus regulated, unregulated means not a part of a public utility, right? So like if you're, if you live in Minnesota, you may have XL Energy as your power provider and they are a public utility in Minnesota. If they have wind assets or solar assets that are on their grid, then that is technically regulated versus unregulated, which would be like if, if they had an XL Energy thing that was in ERCOT on someone else's grid and it's not something that they – they may manage the asset, but they don't manage the the whole public utility part of it, then it's, then it's unregulated. So the idea of – okay, so if I am AEP, American Electric Power, and I was sitting four or five years ago going, I got an idea for a strategy, guys. Let's build a bunch of assets and when we build them, Let's make sure they're operating at a stellar rate. As Phil said, they're above P75. Um, they're, they're kicking butt, right? So that they look really attractive to uh, a potential buyer. So to do that, of course, you need to do great due diligence on you know what kind of technology you're installing, how you're building it, where you're building it, these kind of things. But you also have to have good O&M strategies behind it or some kind of strategy there where you know if it's an FSA where someone else is taking care of it or something, either way. You want to get the first few years of these things really, really killing it as far as uptime guarantees and whatnot or uptime percentage and whatnot. And then you say, we're going to dump this thing. We're going to pay it off, but we're also going to make some money on it. And we're going to take that money and we're going to roll it back into something else. So that's the strategy that we're starting to see take place. And it's not just in the U.S. That's a global strategy. We're starting to see it with some some companies in Europe as well. Um, one of the things I was thinking of as we were reading through this was I've had a lot of conversations with Phil on PPAs. If I was American Electric Power, I may be apt to sign a low PPA to get a project greenlit and on the on the grid. But I think when I sign that PPA, I would sign a, a note in there that says if this thing changes hands, the new owner gets the right to renegotiate the PPA. Ooh. 
right? So that when this thing gets dumped, maybe Invenergy, and I'm saying, I don't know if that could happen or not. I don't know if it does happen, but if I was, if, if I was, you know, my silly self sitting in a writing in contracts, I would write that and see if I could get it passed. Because then when Invenergy CDPQ, because CDPQ owns 50 some odd percent of Invenergy and Blackstone is, is capital. So we'll just say this is Invenergy buying this from these guys, basically. When Invenergy gets it, Invenergy might be like, ooh, this is attractive to buy because now we can renegotiate the PPA possibly uh, once it's already in the grid. Otherwise, that PPA might be locked in for 10, 20 years or something like that. Well, does it give them access to the grid though? Right, It may give you access points into the grid because they're already feeding it where you would have to wait in line to, to feed that transmission line that you're just you're just buying a right away. You might have an asset where it's a 100 megawatt wind farm, but it's been permitted for 200 and now you can put 100 megs of solar behind it or more wind farm. I'm not sure. Uh, like I said, I haven't dug into it, but uh, that's, that would be a, definitely a strategy as well. Yeah, it just seems like the, the, the ability to get connected to the grid is much more difficult than actually creating the, the wind farm or the solar field. It's a weird situation where it is backwards. You're starting to see things take place here where some some companies are becoming more owner operators and some are becoming more developers, right? In this, in this, like the, the big Duke, I think the Duke deal was like, or the when it was for sale, I don't know if I don't know what happened with those assets yet right now, but it was like four billion, right? But Duke also operates in both of those spaces. Duke operates as a a regulated utility out east and then an unregulated in some of their Texas assets and stuff like that. So they were selling a bunch of their unregulated stuff, I believe, as well. But yeah, so you're starting to see, yeah, I think you'll start to see some more and more of this. Invenergy has a has a, a niche where they, I mean, they also develop things too, right? Invenergy won some, some of the auctions for the West Coast offshore wind and whatnot. So they do a little bit of the above. They're a big, they're a big conglomerate. They've got the power to do that. Uh, but you you may see the formation of more of these secondhand. I'm going to buy and operate these um, rather than a strategy of developing. Um, we'll see how it kind of develops because the market is becoming large enough where those things can kind of start to separate themselves out as well. Yeah, if you're not in it for the long term, Invenergy's is definitely aggressive, right? They're aggressive at getting assets, getting into the grid making big gains if you're yeah it's it's starting to be a battle isn't it it's starting to look a lot more and more to be honest with you like the oil and gas world and i'm always making references to it because i was in it for you know 10 15 years whatever but oil and gas fields um people may not know this they're bought and sold like houses right like they're like like someone like it's it's literally like flipping homes someone will buy something that like hey this this used to produce an average, you know, all these wells used to produce an average of a hundred barrels per day. And now, you know, per well on this lease site, and now they're down to 50. Well, I'm going to pay pennies on the dollar for what it costs you to develop. I'm going to come in there, but I'm going to over, I'm going to work over every one of these. And I may do a CO2 injection in the field or, you know, a steam injection in the field, pressurize the thing back up. Now I went from a hundred barrels, I'm kicking them out at 120 now. And then all of a sudden someone else might come in and buy it at that 120. So there's people literally like flipping them like you'd put new new cabinets and flooring in your house. So you may start to see that in the in the renewable energy asset world as well as there's so many players that maybe buying, flipping, adjusting, you know. Kind of it's going to be cool to see develop. Yeah, it's it's happening as as we speak. Yeah, and I think the the inflationary pressure put on by the Fed are going to feed this. So you you're either going to be in 
or you're going to be out. It's decision time. You know, it looks like a lot of boards are deciding to be out of things that are outside their normal operating business. If there's one thing I can see from it is it's the underlying for me, from my standpoint, is the, the importance of O&M for these assets. If you, if, you, if you run them into the ground, they're not going to be worth anything. Right. And you have you have companies out there like, man, if, 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 if nobody's followed drone base now site view and what they're doing for solar assets, because this is wind and solar assets and how they're doing their uh, their, you know, countrywide solar scans and grading of solar assets. It's such a cool they're literally flying inspections on solar assets, thermal and RGB on spec. Uh, and then selling the, you can either sell the data back to the operators themselves, or, you know, with a manned aircraft take you know, flying a, uh, all over the states. You can either sell it back to the operator themselves, or you can start to sell it to financial agencies and insurance companies and all this stuff. So everybody is going to know how your assets are doing and what shape they're in. Um, so staying up on O and M on all all fronts is going to be very important for this kind of business model to take shape. Well, anybody who's interested in Phil Tataro's uh, research into this deal, just just go visit intelstore.com. And if you're looking to sell some assets, you probably want to talk to Phil because he has a pretty good bead on what your assets are probably worth. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has approved new extreme cold reliability standards for power plants, and the standards come with the acknowledgement uh, by the commission that the new rules do not go far enough. Uh, the commission sent the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, which is that nonprofit regulator that sets standards for the industry. Uh, FERC sent NERC back to the drawing board in several areas. Uh, what FERC is essentially saying is, yeah, this is, this is good stuff from NERC, but uh, the generator weatherization requirements are pretty loose and there's really no hard and fast changes that are going to happen. And because we've had a couple of really cold storms, particularly in Texas, and there's one in kind of North Carolina, Tennessee area where blackouts happen because things froze up, uh, they were looking to basically increase the standards and saying, Here, here's how we're going to make the grid more reliable when it gets cold. If the, at the end of the day, if when, you, when I read through a lot of this uh, guidance material or regulatory material, Rosemary, a lot of it was about reporting. Uh, go through your system, determine what things may be susceptible to cold. Uh, show us you've given training to everybody so that they know what to look for when it gets cold outside. And But it didn't really change the, uh, the weather. It didn't change the ability of the equipment to handle the weather better way to describe it. Uh, and a kicker to all this is that the standards require that the industry weatherize its equipment to operate for one hour at extreme cold temperatures starting in April of 2027, four years from now. So the, the wind turbine operators, solar farm operators, gas uh, plant operators, 
need to make sure they have the ability to withstand one hour of cold temperatures in four years. It doesn't seem like they've really gone far enough here, does it? It's an interesting an interesting issue and kind of I, I guess it's a good example of the you know um the the downsides of kind of just leaving it all up to the the free market because none of these um generators uh it, it's not that any of them couldn't winterize their equipment you know technologies exist and um, have been, you know, operating for a long time <laughs> that will keep any of these technologies operating through cold weather, very cold weather. I mean, obviously, Canada doesn't have constant blackouts or, um, you know, Northern Europe, but like there's all sorts of way colder places <laughs> that manage to have reliable um, electricity grids through much, much harsher winters. But it just, it simply, it costs more. So it's not, it's not really that it's, um, a challenge um, in terms of the technology, it's that you have to pay a little bit more for these technologies. Um, so you need, you know, heaters on pumps and uh, I don't know, all, all sorts of random things um, need to change when you know that you're going to be operating in cold temperatures. Um, and so I guess if you've got like a totally free, free market, then you're deciding, well, how many hours of the year on average would I expect to be operating in these cold temperatures? Um, how much money would I make in, in those hours if my system worked and how much will it cost to winterize um, so that they can be operating there? And my assumption is that in the it, the past companies have um, generators have made these kind of you know calculus and decided that it's not financially worth it to them to be able to operate through these pretty rare um, events. It's not that they're not like freakishly rare. I know that Texas freeze was something like a one in ten year type um, cold snap. So it's not like oh wow we could never have predicted this. It's more just that. Yeah, it's going to happen every now and then, but it's not worth us maintaining all our cold weather equipment for, um, yeah, one in 10 year storm. Um, and obviously that's not good enough for people that rely on electricity because people, I mean, people died in that, um, in that event and it's not good enough to have a system failure every 10 years on average. So yeah, the regulator needs to, to do something about it, but unless the financial incentives line up some way, then there's always going to be a reason for companies to try and find loopholes or to, you know, um, just try and avoid doing what they should. Because just because you've told someone they have to go through and, um, you know, identify what needs to be winterized, um, doesn't mean that they're then going to do it one, do it you know, uh, accurately or really in depth and really make sure they've got a very robust system in winter. It's kind of, you know, if there's no money to be made, then it incentivizes them to do a half, half hearted job and just kind of, you know, report in a few line items. Oh yeah, we put this heater in here and it cost us a hundred dollars and now we're winterized. And then, you know, the storm comes, Oh no, it turns out that our system wasn't right. It, you know, there needs to be a penalty for, for actually failing. And, um, yeah, I guess that's the two options. Is one a penalty for failing um, under the conditions that they are, uh, you know, required to be able to ride through, 
or so much upside potential that they want, you know, the profits from those cold hours. So obviously like somewhere like Texas where they have a pretty free electricity market and the price of electricity varies so much um, during that Texas freeze, the price went up so high that anyone that was able to generate and sell electricity through that period just, you know, made heaps and heaps of money. Um, so that would be another option, but you need really high maximum prices for that to work for events that are as infrequent as one in 10 years. And, um, yeah, my understanding is that around that sort of frequency, you're going to need more a stick approach than a carrot approach. Well, Joel, didn't Texas lower that bar? They limited the maximum pricing during these events, I thought to $2,000 per megawatt hour. And in the last icing event, it was upwards of 9,000, if I recall correctly. So they, they put the limit on the top. So you can't, there's no commercial incentive <laughs> to make $4,000 a megawatt hour right now. They've done the opposite of what they would have needed to do if they wanted the market to be able to take care of it. So they've taken away the the upside. Um, so now they have to use the the stick or some other kind of carrot. You know, they could pay people um, a certain number of generators to um, be winterized enough. Um, because I mean, it's not. I don't think it's necessarily the right thing to require every single generator to be able to withstand a very cold weather event. Uh, and in the example of wind turbines, it's it's hard and expensive to maintain um, a de-icing system to use once a decade. You, you know, that would really just be a huge um, cost on the system that you wouldn't see a return for, for. Why not just say, you know, all of the, the gas generators have to do this and we pay them um, for that? Uh, to me, you probably end up with a lower cost overall for doing that. Um, but yeah, that's not the path that they seem to go down. Well, what's the problem in Texas and in North Carolina slash Tennessee? The fact that, not the fact that it, the a lot of systems froze and failed, is that they didn't have any advanced warning about it. They didn't know that they were going to go down at the times that they did. So is is this one hour buffer just to, to give the uh, people that manage the grid kind of a heads up? Like we need to bring on other energy sources to keep the grid alive or to tell people to start powering off things so we don't take down the whole grid is is it are they just buying an hour is that what the intent of this is in the texas case or that texas we're talking about winter storm yuri there that was two years ago there's still lawsuits going on around the negligence for that because like rosemary like you said there was some deaths there were some extreme circumstances around it but it wasn't necessarily the in that in that uh, storm. It wasn't necessarily the renewable assets that went down. It was more the natural gas fired uh, thermal plants that actually. Because then once they started cascading, they just started cascading. So even if you had, say, you have 10, 10 plants and the draw on the system is high, because this draw on the system was super high as well, because a lot of places in Texas are heated with electric baseboards. So once one of them fails, it doesn't matter as much in my mind if the next two or three or four in line are winterized because once they get that spike load on them that's what takes them down it's that cascading issue right so there's like that one and it's very i'm sure i'm hoping that in this legislation and in this written thing there's 
specifics because when they say operate at extreme cold temperatures for one hour starting in April 2027, to me that's just ridiculous. Because also, what's extreme cold to you? Because extreme cold to someone from northern Minnesota is 40 below. And extreme cold to someone from Texas is like 20 degrees. So there's a there's a big difference there, right? But it's a tough one because you want to let the, the free market take care of some of these things. But when you start to put into – because that's the American way, right? But when you start to put into effect that if the free market fails, people lose their lives, something needs to change, right? Like it's not it's not cool to leave it up to the free market – and people die from it because they failed. Like, oh, you, that's a fine on you, naughty, naughty. Like, that's that's not that's not right. But the interesting thing about this event was that so m maybe generators didn't forecast that they were going to go offline, but the storm was certainly forecast. And I know that um, you know people were warned that cold weather was coming. People with electric cars were plugging them in ahead of time to make sure that they had a full charge before the storm. You know, this weather doesn't just come out of nowhere. People confuse that a bit with, you know, variability of renewables. It's tied to the weather, um, but it doesn't just, you know, it all of a sudden go cold in a one-hour period. You can see it. Even if it even if it does go cold in a one-hour period, you know that it's coming um, for days ahead of time usually, and so they could prepare. And especially with um, you know the spike in demand that's expected, there's things that you could do to reduce that if people were were willing. Um, but I think that it's a it's a tough sell in in the United States, which is you know so much um, concerned with individual liberty. And I, uh, you know, as a total outsider, my impression is that Texas is kind of you know like the the most the most like that out of anywhere. So you know, if you say, oh, okay, you've got uh, an indoor pool that you're heating, or you know, an outdoor pool, or you know, jacuzzi or something, you can't use that because we're about to have a huge spike in electricity. You, you could actually take a bunch of loads that are really, really don't need to be on, um, and you could curtail those so that everyone could keep their heating on um, and you didn't have a problem. I know that uh, I've seen articles about, you know, there's sections of um, downtown businesses had their lights on overnight, you, you know, while people were freezing to death. And you, there's heaps of examples of just really unfair allocation of electricity because once you have a mismatch between supply and demand, once you've got a shortfall, it's not so easy to control where it goes. But if you're able to ahead of time, you know, if you've got enough smart appliances or even you can do it the old-fashioned way and you don't have someone send you a text message or ring you on the phone and say, you know, what can you turn off in your house? Can you avoid, you know, doing a load of laundry drying um, using your dryer for this couple of days or, you know, anything like that? You could get enough of a difference to not have, have blackouts and that's um, a, a way cheaper way of doing it than winterizing every single generator um, in the, the country. But it does rely on people being willing to, you know, forgo their jacuzzi at a time when people are, are freezing to death somewhere else in the city. Alan, you're shaking your head. You don't you don't believe that people are, are prepared to make that trade-off between their jacuzzi and somebody else's life. I don't think those two equate. I think you're drawing a connection that doesn't actually exist. There's nobody have the lights on in the office that then is sucking power out of some 
you know, old lady's uh, heating system. That's not the way it works. However, uh, they, they have ways to address it, right? They have ways to, to, to shut off power to different parts of a community or into cities such that it's a rolling blackout. That's what they do in California. But I don't think you design a system to have rolling blackouts. That's not where you want to go here, right? No, and it's not. It, that's not targeted enough either. So I'm not saying that someone's jacuzzi was sucking heat out of some old grandma's um, house. I'm saying that because the the demand spiked, a certain proportion, like maybe 10%, 20%, I don't know, some amount of demand is is not critical things that need to be on right now. It's not even things that you need for your your, your comfort really. And, you know, when you, you have a certain um, load that pushes you over the amount that you can supply, then you get uncontrolled blackouts. You don't just get to say, okay, we're turning off all the jacuzzis. You are just like, okay, we're turning off all the power in this area uh, and if you don't have a, you know, backup, um, uh, uninterruptible power supply, then, you know, your, everything is, is, is switched off at your place for a certain period. And they went beyond that, you know, it wasn't rolling blackouts. It was extended blackouts. The difference in Texas though, there as well, is that the people don't understand cold. And I'm, and I'm being a hundred percent honest with this because like that, that statement, Rosemary, like you're saying, you're a hundred percent correct. Like if we could get everybody to shut your laptop down, turn some lights off, like and lower the, the demand on the whole grid by at the micro level fixes at the macro level, they do that in Texas, but they do it in the summertime when they're like, Hey, don't run your AC or don't turn your AC below 76 degrees or whatever it is. Right. So that stuff happens in the summertime here and under everybody understands it. Cause they're like, Oh, it's hot as hell in Texas. We're going to get blackouts if we don't turn our ACs down. So people will actually do that and they won't do their, their laundry at 5 PM when everybody comes home from school and work and is doing all these activities that that suck a lot of energy. They'll do it. They'll do laundry at, midnight or do laundry at 9 a.m. after people have gone to work or whatever that answer may be. But when it came to the cold, they didn't know how to cope. They didn't know how to do anything, right? It was, it was, it was wild to see being from the north and living through that storm in Texas and listening to the people talk about it. Like, man, how do you not know this kind of stuff? Like, how, how do you – like just, just – it, it was, it was mind-blowing. To be honest with you, but it's it's just a, a they're not used to it, right? But I I believe that these events are going to become more and more common, and if FERC and NERC and the people who are regulating the the power grids are going to do something, actually do something to help the public, because what they did here is is word service. It's just lip service. There's nothing. There's nothing here that's going to do anything. Well, in the IRA bill, we had $370 billion assigned to renewable energy products, projects. Where was weatherizing uh, solar and wind farms part of that? I don't think that it was. But it, it seems like a pretty good use for money, right? Right. Solar farms will work better. They're more efficient when it's cold out anyways. But I mean, are we really talking about going through and retrofitting de-icing systems onto every wind turbine in Texas? I mean, it's just a, a stunning waste of money, in my opinion, to, to, to do that. Texas is a huge area. It, it didn't hit Galveston. It hit sort of northwest Texas, correct, Joel? Well, it hit Galveston. That, well, I hit Galveston too, for sure. 
hard like it did in Northwest Texas. I know it's, it's a huge state. It's the size of many countries. Oh yeah. Are you? We're talking about the same storm, right? We're talking about the one back in twenty. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was living in Houston. I was living in Houston at the time, and Houston was frozen over like it was De- December in Minnesota. 15 degrees, 10, 15 degrees, 18 degrees. Cold enough to, I mean, like I said, the other day we were talking, that storm did more monetary damage to Texas than Hurricane Harvey did. And her, and, and Hurricane Harvey rained 48 inches of rain on Houston, right? It was just, yeah, I mean, it just like, because it broke pipes everywhere and it, it just did so much damage. Well, I, I go back to then. What are we going to do for four years? We're not going to do anything in for four years, essentially. Well, if it's a one in ten year storm, then we're not due for another another six or seven, right? <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> Put it in your calendar for twenty thirty one. Statistics is easy. <laughs> no, but Alan, you're right that um, so yeah, it was widespread across Texas, but it wasn't widespread across the whole United States. And in this specific example. What really, really made it worse was the fact that Texas is not well interconnected to the surrounding areas. That's by far the cheapest way to um, to, to winterize, to you know, protect yourself in um, against winter conditions or any kind of extreme weather event. Um, they're never going to cover such a huge geography as the whole U.S. So if you have lots of interconnectors, then you can um, you know draw on other other states. Um, resources at your time of need, but Texas has chosen not to do that, so they have to go for more expensive um, solutions as a as a result, and that's that's their right to to choose, you know, whatever way they want to get reliability. But um, they're finding out that it's it's very very difficult, and this new solution is not going to work, right? Would that <laughs> would that have prevented if they had the new thing in place at the time of the um, previous storm? Would that have prevented anything much? I, I don't think so. That should be the first test, surely. Actual physical retrofits that this this bill or this 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 new reliability standards recommends or 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 pushes into place doesn't do anything. It doesn't. It doesn't. It does nothing. It, it, it trains people on what to look for. Like that doesn't stop the grid from going down or stop a pump from freezing up. That it doesn't do anything specific, right? So uh, having to weatherize generators so they can withstand a one hour extreme cold is ridiculous. When extreme cold comes in, it's 48 hours, 72 hours, 96 hours. One hour doesn't save you anything. I bet they'd do better if they started subsidizing home um, batteries or um, requiring, you know, electric cars to have a vehicle to grid or two two way or at least vehicle to home um, capabilities. I, I bet you get way more bang for your buck. I mean, certainly when it comes to the wind turbines, which is just, you know, it's crazy to you, you can't really even retrofit to a, a you know reasonable uh, at a reasonable cost and capability. Um, but in Texas, you also run into political issues, right? So there's a lot of very, very conservative people here. So like the, you don't see electric vehicles in this state whatsoever anyway. So a V2X problem wouldn't solve it because I I can go and drive around in between around San Antonio for three hours and I might see one, maybe. If I go to Austin, I'll see some. But if you go to Houston, you're not going to see any. And you go to Dallas, you're not going to see any either. So they, there's, a, there's an issue there too. Battery banks, solar panels on the houses, you know, a distributed grid type thing. It's just not here. But aren't Texans pretty into self, self, 
self-reliance, independence. Shouldn't they love to have like an electric pickup truck that can run their house for three days and then, you know, connect it to solar panels on the roof and you never have to deal with a utility or the, the government or anything? Well, it, it seems to me like it's a perfect match. You would think so. But what the difference is, is, is because classical Texans that have a lot of money here are have usually made it from oil and gas or some kind of egg uh, background. You can go to any ranch around here. You may not see solar panels or you may see solar panels on the water pumps for the cattle, but you won't see a solar panel on the ranch house. But what you will see is a propane 10 kilowatt generator out back. So you, yes, you are correct about the don't be in my business. I'm, I, I'm self, self-sustaining. I can do these things. But renewable energy-wise stuff you don't see as much. You won't see a, a ranch with its own wind turbines or a big solar field out front. Like I've been around the state quite a bit and you just don't, it's just not there yet. Even when people like the, oh, the neighbor, the neighbor sold a hundred acres to someone who's putting a, one of them damn solar fields up. Like, yeah, that's great. Why would they do that? They can, yeah, why would they do that? That's good cattle grazing land. You can graze amongst um, solar panels. There's plenty of um, sheep, sheep farms uh, co-located with solar farms in Australia and obviously wind turbines as well. But, I mean, there is heaps of um, wind and solar in Texas. So, you know, if you look at the actual stats for the amount of wind and um, solar in the U.S. and the growth rates, and, you know, Texas is right up there. Um, so people must like money more than they hate renewables, like, I guess. Like, it's not so strong, their hatred of renewables, that they, that they will turn down an opportunity to make a lot of money. The majority of renewable generation in Texas is out in Western Texas. So Abilene, Midland, Lubbock, all out there. That land for the most part, if you can drive around and see all these things, all these wind turbines and stuff, that land is arid, dry garbage. Like they're not even running cattle out there. The person who owns that land a lot of time doesn't live there. They live in Dallas or something else or San Antonio or whatever. They And their family had owned 10,000 acres since 1885. And they've got some, they've got, there's also oil and gas wells out there that they're making money off of too. So that's just a, it's just a revenue generator. Um, the, the people where they actually live on the ranch and run the ranches and stuff like that, not as much um, renewable generation on those as there is on just the, I call it family money land. Our wind farmer of the week is EDP Renewables North America. Quilt Block Wind Farm, which opened in 2017. They have 49 Vestas V110 2 megawatt machines for a total of 98 megawatts. Uh, Quilt Block is really near the corner of Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, and Iowa. It's in the Quad State area. During its construction, they had about 100 full time construction jobs, and now they have 12 permanent operations people. And the point of raising them as Wind Farm of the Week is what they do to the local community. So when Quilt Block was being constructed and continuing on, they've fed into the local economy about $10 million from people spending money, restaurants, uh, shopping, whatever else. That really feeds the local economy a great deal. Uh, they also have provided about $600,000 to local governments, which then goes to the schools and the fire departments to keep things running. And they paid $6.3 million to local landowners for leases. So it's a it's a really good financial system uh, in, in up here at Quote Block for a lot of people. 
$6.3 million to landowners is a, a really good deal. So Quilt Block Wind Farm up in Wisconsin run by EDP Renewables is our wind farm of the week. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.